This is the Movie Hall of Fame Class of 1960 edition for Thursday, March 12th, 2020. Across the table from me, Adam Hall, we've got a lot to get to. Unfortunately. I didn't realize we had a lot to get to. A lot to get to. Okay. Coronavirus is about to oh, God. wipe out this podcast network. This is like the 10th podcast in a row that starts with coronavirus. We can't help ourselves. <laughs> the world is starting with coronavirus. That is the first <laughs> word out of anyone's mouth when you begin talking to them. I got a message from Jabril today, and he uh, I, I, he said something. Maybe I shouldn't repeat it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I, I realized <laughs> I, I, was, I was thinking about it, and then I'm like, oh, wait a second. I shouldn't repeat that. <laughs> Don't you love when that happens? You start telling a story, and then you realize the ending is wildly offensive. Yeah, it's so like, you just oh, stop. yeah, that's right. That is every sentence I ever utter, <laughs> by the way. I'm glad when we capture those moments uh, in, in audio form. Yeah. It just makes me look like a total idiot, but I promise it was funny. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Again, we have a lot to get to in the world of movies, but first, I need to ask what the fuck happened on The Bachelor last night. Oh no! Please tell me what happened. Okay. I'm counting on you. You were so you were you got you were walking along and you found the Twitter mob. I assume I just saw a few stray tweets uh, complaining about this woman Barb. <laughs> That's all I've seen is I hate Barb, and I thought, are people rediscovering Stranger Things? Is there some revisionist history on season one of Stranger Things? They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah, or is, yeah. yeah that's uh, that. That's all it is. Okay, so that's number one, and I also saw that it ended with another twist. And one of the craziest endings in Bachelor history, I know nothing other than that, so please explain to me what happened. Well, that roughly translates to it was the least crazy bachelor ending in history nothing surprising or remarkable about literally anything that happened still colton season cannot be beat okay um so what happened was uh peter proposed to hannah ann and it looked fine wait a minute her name is hannah ann yes not just hannah hannah ann (laughs) okay every fucking time (laughs) hannah ann and uh what and then all of a sudden it just cuts to them being like, I'm mad at you. You, you. Your your heart is being pulled in two different directions. What's going on? And then it just builds and builds and builds to her being like, fuck you, I'm leaving, and gives them the ring, essentially. Okay. You're a piece of shit. You're not a... Like, that kind of stuff. Okay, I feel like this has happened before, before on The Bachelor. Yeah. It's been so much more compelling before, only because the editing in this was so bad. Okay. Like, they were, like, rushing through. This was, like, the rise of Skywalker of oh, The no. Bachelor. Too like, much plot. Literally, Abby and I were, like, stopping. We're like, are we missing something? Right. Or are they just jumping straight to this? And I'm like, I think this is just a poor edit. Yeah. And she's like, let me go ask my parents because they're ahead of us because we started late. And she's like, did any of this happen? And they're like, no. And she's like, oh, shit. Okay. And yeah, it was just a, a terrible episode. And all it ends up building to is uh, Madison coming back and being like, you know Who's what? Who's Madison? He's the uh, <laughs> He is. She's the girl that he has been in love with for God knows how long now. And really, everyone knows this is who he's supposed to be with. Madison was a contestant on the show? Yes, but she le- she was uh, in Australia with them. She was one of the final two. Right. And she's basically like, you know what? Because you had sex with other women, I don't feel like sticking around. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, bye-bye. Uh, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so he didn't eliminate her. She she eliminated herself. Yes, yes. Got it. A la Cassie Randolph from Colton season, except uh, right. literally the same thing just happened in this one. Okay. It's just copying fucking Colton season. So he was not really left with a decision other than to propose to the last woman standing or not. Precisely. So he's like, all right, 
she's the only one that stuck around might as well put a ring on it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. So who's Barb? Barb is Peter's mama. Oh. It's his mama. And he's been sucking on those tits for God knows how long. It's the psycho ending. It was bad, man. So basically, uh, when... Uh, he was bringing the girls to the parents. They fell in love with Hannah Ann. Right. And they fucking hated Maddie. Okay. They hated her. So now the parent visit is a common thing. Yes. Uh, the Bachelor, right? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But so does this happen a lot where the mother disapproves of one of the Bachelorettes and so he cuts her out? Not to this extent. Okay. I mean, in, in the past that I've seen, it's usually been pretty consistent where it's like if there were hesitations they were open about it but we weren't like screw you dude it was not like that mtv show parental control no you ever seen that show (laughs) i've heard of it only (laughs) the parents with the earpieces just manipulating their sons and daughters dates that's essentially what these people were doing but anyway okay uh yeah it it was it was never this hostile it was basically like well you know she's she she doesn't seem like she's exactly what we expected but you know what let's give it a shot you know you never know with these people you never know what love can be right they're they're a little more open-minded than fucking barbara (laughs) Um, anyway, it ends up that Chris Harrison goes to Maddie, who's in, uh, like, I think Nashville. I don't even remember, but she's way the fuck away from LA. Yeah. And he's like, do you still love Peter? And she's like, yeah, I do. So they reenact- Why is he involved? Cause Chris- Why is he playing middleman? It's Chris isn't- Harrison. Isn't he supposed to be like dude, the neutral moderator here? Dude, I wouldn't be surprised if Chris Harrison showed up right now walking through <laughs> that door. For God only knows what reason. That guy is just everywhere. Chris Harrison needs to stay out of his friend's relationships, man. <laughs> He's the kind of guy, it's like you're... <laughs> Like in that comical movie where the couple's having sex and he just pops his head up and gives suggestions. Man, or he's prodding way too much. Oh yeah, dude. that's literally all he ever does. Stay out of it. It's like if Chris Harrison's around, it's bad. It's like the the weatherman, you know. If that guy is on scene, chances are shit's going down. <laughs> right. Um. But yeah, he basically reunites uh, Maddie and Peter, and the season ended in the most anticlimactic way. It was just them on a couch saying, "Yeah, we're gonna give it a shot." The only thing that made it interesting and crazy to watch was barbara sitting there scowling and being like i don't want you to date my son and she literally (laughs) what is barbara's reason for this just because she didn't feel it literally her words were you just feel it sometimes and it was not there with her it was there with hannah ann and then chris is like what is he gonna have to do to make this work and her words were he's going to have to succeed to fail wow what a bitch and that was that yeah and so how are peter and what's her face doing i don't know i have no didn't idea. they have a reunion special or, or is that next week maybe it's next week i have no idea they usually i mean that doesn't happen until a little bit later okay usually if we know anything about it i just look it up on social media because i'm invested got it <laughs> and um the mom was like everyone in the family knows that it's not gonna work she says this on live television wow. for the entire world to fucking hear wow. and it's crazy and then we're, we're like okay abby we, we we have to look at twitter and we're just like scrolling through twitter and all we can ever see is what a horrible cesspool oh my god what a terrible place <laughs> i saw one that was like i would never date a man and that that made it so i had to put up with fucking barb and yeah. i i don't blame anybody who is saying that like all these women are like screw this woman she's the worst and you know what i i don't blame them this this, this is one of the i i've never 
hated anyone on television in quite a long time. It's been a while. But what made it like really, really, really weird was after all was said and done and they reintroduced the new Bachelorette, who is Claire Crawley, uh, the credits start rolling and Claire goes over to the mom and gives her a hug and they start having a lively conversation. Wow. And I'm just confused. I was like, okay, like you're already off to a bad start, Claire. Why don't they make Barb the next Bachelorette? Yo, fuck yeah. <laughs> I want to see that show. Oh man! Wow, man! It was it was yeah it was a it was a shit show all because Barb uh, she has some opinions she has some hot takes you might say yeah so well a, a boy's best friend is his mother Adam <laughs> you know how this goes only the worst know that yeah uh, you want to talk about the year nineteen sixteen let's give it a shot okay the Virgin Spring the Magnificent Seven Spartacus the Apartment Psycho and Breathless one of those six movies inducted into the movie Hall of Fame within the next hour and a half or so highest grossing movie of that year was Spartacus with a whopping 14 million dollar gross <laughs> what an insane number I know right you read that now what's the, I wonder what the inflation would be at yeah I, I assume it's probably close to 100 million something like that Psycho was number two Exodus number three the Alamo and Swiss Family Robinson tied for number four, and The Apartment, the number five highest grossing movie of 1960. Cool. Best Picture, uh, your nominees were The Alamo, Elmer Gantry, Sons and Lovers, The Sundowners. I don't know what any of these movies are. <laughs> and the winner, of course, is The Apartment. Billy Wilder takes home Best Director. Burt Lancaster takes home Best Actor for Elmer Gantry. Elizabeth Taylor wins Best Actress for Butterfield 8. Peter Ast- Estinov, Estinov, Peter Estinov wins Best Supporting Actor for Spartacus, and Shirley Jones wins Best Supporting Actress for Elmer Gantry. Um, I did have some honorable mentions. I haven't seen any of them, but I hear these movies are quite good. Stop me if you've heard any of them before. Inherent the Wind, H.G. Wells's Time Machine. I have seen that one. It's another like oldie that I saw a long time ago, and all I remember about it was a guy punching white monkeys. Okay. Peeping Tom. I have seen that, and I fucking love it. Swiss Family Robinson, I just said, and Eyes Without a Face. That one I've been meaning to see for a while. It's a French film that uh, Edgar Wright absolutely adores, and it's super gory, but it's very, very well known in the horror scene. And when I was considering nominating, but I didn't want you to have a conniption. Okay. So. <laughs> National Film Registry inducts The Apartment, The Magnificent Seven, Psycho, and Spartacus into their list, um, including these other movies, House of Usher, which is a Roger Corman horror movie. Okay, I haven't seen it. Based on an Edgar Allan Poe story. Okay. Wild River, directed by Elliot Kazan, and then two documentaries, Primary, about the JFK presidential primary. And Jazz on a Summer's Day, a concert documentary. Okay. That's all I got for that. Fun, 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 fun. Going back. Back in time. I had to watch a number of these movies for the first time. Mm -hmm. I know you did as well. Um, And I believe, uh, I don't know, mixed results. Bit of a mixed bag. In your opinion? Yeah. Okay. Okay. We'll see what you think about it. And we're going to start with The Virgin Spring. But before we start with The Virgin Spring, I do want to give you a chance to talk about your boy Max von Sydow. Oh, yeah. Who stars in this movie, directed by Ingmar Bergman. Uh, Passed away this week at the age of 90. And 
Apparently, you were very upset about this. I was actually shocked when you sent me this text message. Yeah, I was incredibly upset. It's the first time I've ever cried over a celebrity death. That's insane to me. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize how much uh, he meant to me as like a, a presence in cinema until I saw that, oh my God, he's he's gone. It's like, what? There's something about that guy that was just deeply affecting to me. And yeah, just seeing him do his thing, you know? It's one of those ones where it's like, oh God, I just... It always felt better knowing that he was there, you know? Yeah. I just loved everything he ever did, you know? It's, an, it's not a single... It's a, He's another one of those, like, Harry Dean Stanton moments where it's like every movie is just better because he's in it, you know? Yeah. Uh, similar to Harry Dean Stanton, I, I think with Harry Dean, there was a sort of, like... Uh, uh, he's part of the furniture quality. <laughs> like he just sort of blended into the background and he was a welcome presence and you enjoyed seeing him, but he never took up too much of your attention. I wouldn't say that about Sido. I, I would not say that about Sido. Exactly. That's, that is the difference. Um, Sido could be both the supporting character that just sort of enhanced every scene he was in, yep. but also the lead that dominated every scene that he was in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not just talking about the exorcist or seventh seal or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, uh, you know, extremely loud and incredibly close, mm-hmm. which is not a great movie that came out in 2011, but he is tremendous in it. We just talked about Shutter Island recently. Uh, he's incredible in Three Days of the Condor. Yeah. We talked about him last year when we watched that movie for the first time. Mm-hmm. He was such a Swiss army knife of a of an actor, mm-hmm. this guy. And he's not your traditional leading man. He's not traditionally attractive or sexual he's tall and lanky and had a weird face that often sagged a lot <laughs> and I, I said this on cultured reminds me so much of adam driver yeah. can be both the leading man supporting character and has this weird charisma that drew you in but but you never quite knew why yep and he was just such an enigma that way. Really fascinating actor in everything that he's in. No, I just loved watching him for those reasons, though. Like like you said, with Adam Driver, it, 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 that's, that couldn't have said it better. It's like he's fascinating, but you're not entirely sure why. And that's why I'm always excited to see him act in anything he's in and why, like, every time I've seen him in a Bergman film, it's just wonderful. And besides Bergman films, like you said, it's just he can do pretty much anything. And I, I think I, I messaged you that there's such a dominance to everything he does, but he's just so sweet at the same time. Yeah. It's just like there's a there's a weird lovability about him, which I can say the same about Adam Driver as well. Yes. And yeah, I, I don't know. Just such a such a deeply pure quality to him you know to everything he would do and just such sincerity and like i said just seeing a picture of him like like at his age not, like, that he was just i don't know it really got me up and choked you know choked me up a lot and i was upset yeah wow i was like holy shit von sit i didn't yeah no i'm serious i didn't understand how 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 much he's how important he was to me until you know he was gone favorite von sit performance Three Days of the Condor is pretty fucking good. I think it's mine too. Uh, but you haven't seen The Seventh Seal. I have not. Uh, he's very good in The Seventh Seal. Um, he's very good in Virgin Spring. My impression, though, is that um, Seventh Seal it's more Bergman's movie than it is von Sydow's movie. Right? Yeah, I would say. But I, I would say that he's Sidow's one of the reasons that that movie was iconic. Yeah. So there's that. Um, I believe he's also in Wild Strawberries too, which is oh, Wild Strawberries is awesome. Man, I need to do that. You need to see some Bergman. Uh, yes. Every, yeah, no, he is in Wild Strawberries, and he's very good in that, but he's more of like a common man in that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've still been meaning to see, a, I think it's called a, The Hour of the Wolf, which is another Bergman film. Okay. And uh, apparently he's tremendous in that. Uh, he was he played Jesus. Did you know that? In what? 
in uh, the greatest story ever told. Oh, really? Yeah, which I had no idea. Yeah, what a like. <laughs> the other reason why it was so fascinating is because he had that voice. Oh yeah, <laughs> and you didn't know exactly what that accent was. From what I can tell, I was reading about him this week. Born in Sweden, but raised in Germany. Okay, so he had sort of like uh, a hybrid accent of, of Swedish and German. And anytime you saw him, it was such a recognizable voice, but you also didn't know what region of the world he was from. Mm-hmm. Like that's why you could just plug him in so easily anywhere mm-hmm. it, because you didn't quite know who Max von Sydow was, <laughs> even though he was so recognizable. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I, I he's just one of those guys that shows up everywhere and you just again he's one of those figures where it's like you know him even if you don't know his name yes you know it's like oh it's a it's a wonderful that guy one of the great that guys but again he's to me i feel like that's selling him short because he's so much more than just that guy in yes. the movies you know he's like there there are the dick millers and there are the the harry dean stands of the world but he was i i actually do think he was a little more elevated than that. yes well yeah because he was a leading man at times yeah. two-time oscar nominee yeah. um he was a, it was a silent performance and extremely loud and incredibly close yeah. what the fuck yeah man he was nominated for that yeah holy shit and it's a great performance again i don't love that movie but it, he is by far and away the best part of it and as he often was also seemed to be 60 years old All. when he was 30 yeah <laughs> <laughs> he's always been old always think, been an old guy i think a lot of that is because of the exorcist though yeah. we, we just assume he's always been that age even though if you, you you forget the fact that he was in makeup the entire time yeah he was like 35 yeah when he shot that movie mm-hmm. so von Sydow will be missed let's talk about one of his movies the virgin spring as i said directed by ingmar bergman starring Von Sydow, along with Birgitta Valberg, Gunnel Lindblom, and Birgitta Peterson. Good job. Not really. Winner of Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars, also nominated for Best Costume Design. An innocent yet pampered young virgin and her family's pregnant and jealous servant set out to deliver candles to church, but only one returns from events that transpire in the woods along the way. Based on a 13th century Swedish ballad and the legend of Peter Torre, that's who Max von Sydow plays, who had seven daughters who each fell victim to seven rapists. Apparently, there are several stories about this character. This is the one he chose to make into a movie. It's the first Ingmar Bergman movie I have ever seen, Adam Hall. Really? I have not seen an Ingmar Bergman movie until last night when I popped this shit in. It's one of Woody Allen's favorites. Okay. What of Woody Allen's favorites? What of Ridley Scott's favorites? What of most, like, this is a common favorite amongst uh, most of our personal favorite directors. David Fincher's another one. You're saying Bergman's one of their favorite directors, or this movie is one of their favorite directors? Movies? Directors. Okay. So, which I would imagine, I mean, Bergman, I've never seen a bad Bergman film, so. Okay. Um, you watched this for the first time? Yeah. All right. What'd you think? I really liked it. Really? Really liked it a lot. Okay. Yeah. But it was interesting. I mean, like I said, I, I Bergman's one of those guys that has a very, very specific tempo to his films. And it's not really for everybody. I can imagine a lot of people watching his movies and thinking they're very, very slow. But I don't know. I find them very stern and contemplative and they're very existential and they sort of leave you wondering more about yourself in a deeply human way they're kind of spiritual and a lot i've never seen him lose sight of those themes in any one of his films even when they're a little more grounded or even you know fantastical of course um but this one was funny because (laughs) uh i started watching it and um i don't know okay (laughs) 
Yeah. I don't. I don't know if this says if this is a good thing or a bad thing. I was, but the the film was going, and it gets to the point where the girls are about to go out into the woods. Yes, and they haven't even really left their ranch. Yeah, and I, in my head, I'm just like, eh, it kind of looks like uh, Last House on the Left. Oh yeah, and none of the crazy shit had happened. Yeah, right. And I was like, I just, I don't know why. It just, the, the image of two girls walking into the woods made me think, oh, Last House on the Left. Yes. And then it becomes Last House on the Left. And then, <laughs> to, to take things a step further, I had, I was like, okay, I got to research this. Yeah. And it turns out, Last House on the Left is a remake of this. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> I was blown away. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> when everything snaps into focus for you, it is like quite a moment. But I don't, but the fact that I assumed that it was going to be a movie about rape. <laughs> I don't know if that means I've seen a lot of movies or I'm just good with my horror movies or, or, or what. But like, I was like, is that good or bad that I predicted that it was about that well i'll say this i thought the exact same thing not necessarily the last house on the left part of it i've never seen that movie west craven horror movie from what like 72 73 something Something like that um but i did think oh no this girl ain't making it back yeah and i figured once they ran into the three near duels out in the woods i saw where it was going um hmm. again never seen a bergman movie adam yeah <laughs> this movie's just peas and carrots for me. Okay. These these are the vegetables. This is what you gotta eat at dinner time before you get to dessert because mom and dad say they're good for you, so you gotta eat them. <laughs> what does that mean, Nico? Uh it means I was really fucking bored during this movie. Okay. That's what it means. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was painfully dull. Okay. I just found it to be a, a generally unpleasant experience. Not even because of the content, although in 1970, I'm sure the content was quite groundbreaking and disturbing. And I know that several theaters had to censor the rape scene in this movie. Um, But I found the pacing to be so off-putting. I found the lack of score to be really annoying. (laughs) Um, the, The editing... I mean, it's 1960 and they're editing on film and I understand like the cuts are not meant to be perfect and we're going to talk about a movie in a minute where the cuts are definitely not perfect, but like I just found it to be a really underwhelming experience. There's not a lot of sound design. When characters fall on the ground, you don't hear the sound of them hitting the ground. It's a lot of movies of this era though. Yeah, it almost feels like a silent movie except with none of the charm of a silent movie. It, it Man, maybe it's just dated. Maybe it's just I haven't seen enough Bergman and I'm not conditioned to this taste and it may take me a while uh, to acquire it, but I was really bored the whole time, man, and I I can't get over it. The hour and a half felt like two and a half hours. Nah, it's not that bad. (sighs) And I don't mean to sound like a Philistine, man, in the words of Jeff Daniels from Squid and the Whale. I don't mean to be a fucking Philistine. A Philistine? (laughs) He's a Philistine, Walt. (laughs) What is a Philistine specifically? It's like a guy that doesn't understand high culture. He's like an uncultured swine, essentially. You have a history with foreign films, though. Is I, see, I don't buy this. <sighs> I don't buy this. I think if you showed this to most people, they would feel the exact same way. And it's not necessarily because of the foreign language aspect. I think it has more to do with the fact that it's old and it's in black and white. Uh, come on, dude. There are several black and white movies on this list, and I like most of them. Mm. 
No, I think it's because it's foreign and it's in black and white. Wow. <laughs> wow. I know so many people that say, I won't watch a movie because it's black and white. When have I ever been that guy? Mm. I've never been that guy. No, but you've certainly been that way with foreign films. You tried to get out of watching one of these movies last night, didn't I you? I did. I'm just saying, man. Because it felt like homework. And it turned out I was correct. It was taking my vegetables. I'm watching it and I'm, I, I don't get it, man. I've seen this story many times since. That's not the movie's fault. But I've seen the revenge story. Mm-hmm. I've seen the girl goes out in the woods and gets raped story. It felt a lot like the Nightingale, which you made me watch last year on Hulu. Uh, had shades of that. Didn't feel anything like that to me. You didn't think so with the, the setting a, and like the there's a rape, but the so tone. What? Yeah, so what? No. The revenge element. No, really, you didn't feel that way. No, I mean that movie is not nearly as uh, like like again. There's a person. There's a personal quality to Bergman's films and such a deep-seated humanity to everything that goes on where it's like even the tiniest actions feel like they matter just to like see it out like slamming the knife into the table you know just to almost like assert his dominance in a scene or or the the time it takes for him to 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 flog himself with the with the birch trees and whatnot like there's a real artistry to everything that i see in his movies that is just i don't know it's deeply affecting and it's not necessarily one of those things where i can tell you exactly why that choice was made but it feels wholly appropriate it just feels like oh yeah do i get it not like like i I can't explain it to you but yeah i get it inside so all these great directors love bergman and i i'm going to take their word for it on that like scorsese talks at length about how bergman inspired him oh yeah and it points to specific choices that he made in his movies that are direct homages to bergman i understand um i find martin scorsese's movies to be very entertaining i do not find the virgin spring to be entertaining in any way shape or form <laughs> and i don't know why beyond the fact that it's just slow and understated and that's good though i'm surprised you didn't like it a little more because it is so understated that's sort of one of the reasons i appreciated it so much because i think every revenge story is overstated sir yeah yeah. and i like a good revenge story but it's interesting that i came out on the other end here where it's like oh i actually enjoyed i usually like movies that are a little more like boom in your face but uh i think it's because of the the genre that this is playing and seeing it done this way was a little more affecting because again it's it 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 sort of reminds me of blue ruin because blue ruin is a deeply understated um um revenge movie that is let the the revenge is like the the least important thing in that it's more well the the revenge is more out of obligation in that movie it's like the character played by macon blair is just mimicking the stuff that he sees in revenge movies, and it's sort of an inversion of that. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, somebody killed my parents, so now I must take vengeance upon them because that's what Steve McQueen would have done, or that's what Charles Bronson would have done. You think that's what it is? Yeah, I do. I think a, I, I think a lot of ways it's playing with tropes in of the script, revenge movies. I don't yeah. think the character himself. No, is no, I, I don't. I don't mean literally. I yeah. mean just like yeah. yes, Jeremy Sonier is playing around with those tropes. Yes, 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 yes. Um. Here, well, here's part of the problem, too. Not much happens in this movie. No. Like, nothing happens in this movie. It's basically a short story told over an hour and a half. It's like, you spend 20 minutes introducing these characters, and you learn a little bit about them, and then the girls go out in the woods, and one of them gets raped and murdered, spoiler alert, and then their murderers, the murderer returns to camp and meets Max von Sydow, and then Max von Sydow kills them the end basically the movie and i mean you have to take into account like them them finding the daughter and and whatnot and 
the ultimate conclusion of of their discovery of her and her body. And, yeah, and, that and was what, just a little artsy fartsy yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah, what the what the vengeance means? That was artsy fartsy. Well, we have another movie coming up. Yeah, yeah the, well, the water coming out of her head was just. Who the fuck cares, man? That's a lot of Bergman's films, though. Right. And you're like I said, you're either going to roll with that or you're not. I don't think it's that hard to 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 accept, though. I'm not interested in any of these themes. Okay. I I, I just think fundamentally. First of all, movies about faith often bore me. <laughs> um, and like specifically movies like this, which are about paganism and Christianity and how those two are often at odds and praying to the god Odin for revenge on this girl and just all of this he mythology. Well, he wasn't praying to Odin. He was literally. No, playing. she was. The, the, the peasant was. The peasant. No, yeah, that's. But Sita was praying to God. Yes. For like forgiveness and stuff. And. Yeah. Uh, whatever, man. A, a big fucking shrug. That's fine. A big shrug. Give some respect to it, though. I will give respect to Igmar Bergman because, again, other filmmakers <laughs> have talked glowingly about him. I'm Apparently, not- this is also uh, like heavily inspired by Rashomon, the Kurosawa movie. Is that accurate? I, the only way, I mean, a s- shit happens in the woods. <laughs> Rashomon is fucking awesome. Bergman what? called this movie, quote, a lousy imitation of Kurosawa. <laughs> That's what he said about his own movie. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah Rashomon's much better. Don't worry. But, um, okay. oh my God, I fucking love Rashomon. Yeah, it's too bad to honor the uh, the legacy of Max von Sydow. I was just insanely bored I think in my he's, bedroom last night. I think he's great in the movie, too, by the way. Man, I was dozing off. Oh, he's great. When did you watch it? What time did you watch the movie? When I texted you. That night? Oh it was God. like 11.30. I told you, I had to make my way through two fucking foreign black and white movies. You couldn't have watched it this morning? No, I wanted to bang it out last night. You gotta stop doing that. I man. had stuff to do this morning, I man. I don't care. Make time. You have a bad problem with that. I feel like every time you have a you complain about a, a movie like this, you're always watching it at like the eleventh hour, where it's impossible not to fall asleep, even if you're watching fucking Fury Road or something. Stop. This movie was boring as hell. I'm sorry, guys. I don't think it helped that you watched it at fucking midnight. Or that is whenever. not the problem. I it's think boring it, and it's slow and it's, it's dated and it's artsy fartsy. I think it's definitely slow, but that doesn't make it bad or unengaging. I don't think it's dated at all. So, the Magnificent Seven. Here's a dated movie. <laughs> <laughs> Directed by John Sturges. A remake, speaking of Kurosawa, Seven Samurai, a movie that we previously inducted into the Movie Hall of Fame, starring Yul Brenner, Steve McQueen, Horst Butschultz, Charles Bronson, Robert Vaughn, Brad Dexter, and James Coburn, nominated for Best Original Score at the Academy Awards, did not win the award. Which is actually surprising. I thought the score was quite good. The score is iconic. Yeah. Of course, that great theme. Uh, did not win best original score. Seven gunfighters are hired by Mexican peasants to liberate their village from oppressive bandits. That is the premise. Number eight on AFI's all-time score list and number 79 on their all-time thriller list. This is the first time I have seen this movie, although my grandfather talks about it glowingly. This is one of these movies that he watches on like his satellite Western channels. You ever okay. seen those channels? Yes. It's like channel 950 on your cable box. And it's all four by three reruns of like old westerns and shit. There's an entire channel de- dedicated. There to are it? several. Jeez. There are several. What my grandfather loves this channel called Grit. It's 
it's called Grit, and he watches it all the time. True Grit? No, it's just called Grit. Well, okay. True Grit is on there, certainly. Sure. The original. Um, how'd so, you, yeah. How'd you feel about this one, Nico? Uh, well, don't say my name like that. Um, <laughs> how did I say it? That, don't worry about it. Uh, I thought it was fine. Yeah. I thought it was totally fine. But again, I was totally bored. <laughs> uh, no, it's another one. I'm not, I wasn't bored at all. It's just, uh, um, it's in the wake of like Westerns in general, there, there's a lot here that I, 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 I don't know. It's, it's no John Ford and it's certainly, certainly no Sergio Leone. Certainly not. Where there is just so much vibrancy and energy and edited just to a T and, yeah. and just such a rhythm to the, like so much character just in the filmmaking of oh, Sergio yeah. Leone film. Yeah. And it's not quite there here. It also doesn't help that you want to talk about poor imitations. Like, uh, I didn't real like, again, I haven't seen this film since I was a little, little kid and I did not realize now how much of a remake this actually is. of. Seven oh Samurai. yes. Like the whole, characters are directly borrowed in some cases. I mean, holy shit, but not even just that, but some of the performances are cued with other actors from that movie. And in some sense, in some cases it works. And then others, it's just like, what are you doing, man? Yes. Like, like the guy who's, who's, um, who's, uh, um, uh, Playing the character of uh, what the heck is he? he's like the 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 kid the cowardly one the ca- Chico yeah 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 Who's, that's that's the guy horsed Bolcho Charles uh, uh, <laughs> all he's doing say hi oh my god no all he's doing is imitating Toshiro Mufune yes and just doing a really bad job a really bad job really, he's not good in this movie no he's really bad in this movie uh, yeah actually. I was I was contending with that I'm like you are it's so blatantly obvious that that's what you're doing but why are you even thinking to do that right that is such a specific character and charm that only he had yeah what makes you think you can do that yes and clearly did not have the chops because he's surrounded by movie stars and he is such he sticks out like a sore thumb in this movie it was like arrogant i'm like what are you doing he has a weird german accent throughout and he's trying to do american the guy is german born as many of these actors are gil brenner is german he's Uh, russian actually oh okay okay. oh that's right because i i read somewhere though that he did he go to germany well i think he was playing coy about the fact that he's russian i don't think he ever admitted to the fact that he was russian oh. they discovered discovered it about him later in life i don't know if it was like the cold war angle okay well that would make a lot of sense yeah uh charles bronson same thing as a is a foreigner um so yeah i, I kind of found it weird that many of them were playing americans but they they had these weird accents all throughout i mean charles bronson has never had like much of an accent he's always sounded pretty american to me he just doesn't look doesn't right doesn't look but yul brenner i was like oh american wait what right oh what is that that's a weird accent but it's not again this is an instance where it's like it's not that like the i wasn't like i got used to the accent yeah and i thought their presence was all pretty good like i thought yul did a good job in the part that he was you know asked to 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 play and I mean, I thought he was a very commanding lead, you know, not not exactly what I would have thought. But I actually think him in the lead and Steve McQueen as like his his second man actually worked better than the reverse in a weird. Yes. Way, in, in an interesting way. Yeah. But that's funny, though, because the two of them got in a feud on the set of this movie really? because Brenner thought McQueen was trying to upstage him the entire time. And I think it like destroyed their relationship. At first, Brenner was the guy that brought McQueen in demanded that the studio cast him and then they ended up having a falling out well it just shows that mcqueen has just more charisma than you can yes you know carry yes 
uh, yeah, McQueen is awesome and everything he's oh in. God. Um, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think Seven Samurai is so far and away a better movie. <laughs> it's not even close. Like, yeah. this is a decent Western with movie stars doing movie star things. Does not have the sense of character, though, that Kurosawa brought to no, Seven Samurai. Not at all. Which is so bizarre, but, um, like, I didn't know anything about a lot of these actors. You get a little bit of character stuff, like with Bronson and the kids. I loved all the stuff with Bronson and, and the kids. Oh, yeah. No, that stuff was great. And you get a few moments where they're drinking by themselves in the saloon, and, like, Brenner talks about how he doesn't have anyone that loves him, no family, no kids, nothing to lose, all that. So there are a few moments where you get a glimpse of these characters, <laughs> but for the most part, they were just guys with guns. Well, that was the thing, is that it, it, it takes the time to, like, check off those boxes, but it doesn't necessarily feel like it's exploring them as much. Yeah. I mean, the, the, honestly, I, I can go back to uh, the, the Tashiro Mufune character, because they have a very, very similar encounter in that movie where it's, he's like, yeah, you know, you fucking gunslingers, you know, you're the reason that these people are the way that they are. And they're like, Oh, because you were one of those, those people, one of those farmers, you were just like them. And it's like an offhanded comment. And it's like, they take like 10 seconds to talk about it in this movie. And then they just go straight into gunfighting. Whereas in that movie, they're just in a hut, like dealing with the fact that they're in over their heads. And then, it, uh, Tashiro Mufune is just like yeah well here's here's the deal guys and they actually take a lot of time to explore that and let the audience sit with it and it's like deeply impactful and almost like heartbreaking to see this overconfident guy just go to like this pathetic husk yeah to just admit who he is and I'm like oh that was actually really powerful and then to see him rise above that at the end it's just beautiful and there's really none of that in this movie it's more of an action movie that's going for a little bit more substance but at the end it's just an action movie there's not a lot of social commentary here as opposed to seven samurai which just felt drenched with like class differences yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and and generation-long feuds and territory and yeah. all this stuff is so palpable because Kurosawa is just a master filmmaker and John Sturgis is like a hired hand for Hollywood. Yeah. And it's, it's not a bad movie. No, it's, I don't no, it's, think it's a bad movie. It's good. Either. It's quite good, I think. But it, it's... I mean, I don't... <laughs> I think I was expecting a little more given its legacy and I was like, well, it's it's just an action movie. Yeah, it's I I and I, I remember people getting upset that it was remade again, but Which I, I did not see that movie. Did you uh, No, but I actually heard it was not bad. OK, that's Denzel. Yeah, it's the Anton- Chris Pratt's in it. Yep. And Ethan Hawke is an Antoine Fuqua film. D'Onofrio's in it, too, I think. Is he? I think so. Interesting. Yeah. But I but after seeing this, I'm like, no, you could remake that. Yeah, I don't think you're tampering with the legacy too much to remake yeah. this movie. I mean, it's weird to say that you're doing a remake of a remake, but yeah. I mean, okay, fine. Right. No, I, I, I'm not too precious about this material, I don't think. Remake it as many times as you want. I, I see it as just a traditional Hollywood vehicle for movie stars to do movie star things, and it's not like the story or the thematic stuff is is too... Is too precious because well, how are you going to top Seven Samurai though? Like honestly, no, you're not. I mean, what's the best that we've done since then? So what the f- fucking Bugs Life? <laughs> I mean, you, 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 it's the thought of remaking. I mean, again, it's so interesting because Seven Samurai is one of the most like reworked uh, pieces of intellectual property that's there's ever been. Yeah, but for some reason they there's they will never even come remotely close to touching that. Yeah. Because that's how good the movie is. So it's like, oh, why are you doing it? But 
I'm, I mean, I'm not offended because it's like it's not a movie that tarnishes the legacy of Seven Samurai. No, because it's not called Seven Samurai. Yeah, I mean, and they they are allowed to coexist. I have no problem yeah, with that. I don't I, care. Things get remade all the time. There are remakes and sequels and TV shows inspired by classic movies. We're going to talk about Psycho in a few minutes. Psycho had four sequels and a remake. It's funny, though. Virgin Spring, Magnificent Seven, Spartacus was remade into a TV show. I yeah. Uh, Breathless has been remade. Psycho has been remade. Yeah. Has The Apartment ever been touched? I do not believe so. They might have done like a Broadway version. Okay. But that's it. <laughs> so essentially, Apartment's the only one that's untouched here. Yeah. So <laughs> everything's been done. It's okay. And and we still remember these movies fondly. No one's like, oh, Psycho has been tarnished by the three... Se-. Same with Jaws. Everybody talks about you know no. the Jaws sequels oh, being it, so evil. Who cares? Man, it's like, shut up, guys. It's fine, man. It's just a fucking movie about... Not those. everything has to be perfect, like in a trophy case somewhere, un- untarnished. Godfather 3 fucking blows, man. <laughs> I can still watch Godfather 1 and 2 and love them. I don't mind Godfather 3. I know you don't, but that's all right. Uh, yeah, give me more Charles Bronson. He was my favorite part of this movie, I think. Um, that score is amazing. Yes. And I think the movie in many ways has been elevated because, number one, it's got an incredibly recognizable score. Yes, it does. And... Um, and also, these people became way more famous in the coming years. Yeah. So now we look back and think, wow, all these great movie stars were in the Magnificent Seven together. I know. It's kind of cool when that happens. When like all these people, right before they broke big, had a, had a collaboration. It's like watching The Godfather for the first time. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a cool time capsule piece. I, I usually like that as well. Yeah, it's like Pacino, James Caan, Brando, yeah. later De Niro, all in a movie together. Good for them. Yeah. It's a good movie. I'm just like, I, I wasn't like like... You know, enamored by it. Yeah. Um, the grandfathers can have movies too. All right. <laughs> they deserve movies too. And they're going to be saying the same about us when you know we get older. It's fine. <laughs> That's right. Mad Max Fury Road is so fucking boring. <laughs> when it's remade for a fifth time. <laughs> um, man, could you imagine? Like one day. My heart will break. <laughs> you have no idea. They're watching like John Wick 3. Uh, John Wick 30. And like, it's like, really, guys? Uh, this was entertaining for you? Yeah. No, seriously. There's, there will be a day, Nico, where someone watches Fargo and they're like, so what? Oh, man. Think about that. Ugh. I hate myself. I know. I hate the world. <laughs> Spartacus. I am Spartacus. Mm. Uh, I say dr- that every time. <laughs> It's the one thing I think of. <laughs> Directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Dalton Trumbo, the blacklisted screenwriter who was just uh, the feature of the Brian Cranston movie yep. from a few years ago. Which I did not see. It's all right. All right. Cranston's good in it. Okay. Starring Kirk Douglas, the late Kirk Douglas, Lawrence Olivier, Gene Simmons, not Kiss Gene Simmons, another Gene Simmons, <laughs> and Charles Lawton. Yep. Winner of Best Supporting Actor, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, and Best Costume Design. Also nominated for Film Editing and Original Score. Number five, AFI Epic, 62 Thriller, 22 Hero, 44 Inspirational Movie, and 81 Movie of All Time. 81? Yeah. Oh my God. Too high or too low? Way too high. The Slave Spartacus leaves, <laughs> leads a violent revolt against the decadent Roman what? Republic. 81? What? I sense you don't like this movie. I like this movie fine, but like 81? <laughs> what the hell? What? I think we're on the same page with Spartacus. I don't love it either. I mean, no, it's it's good. It's perfectly good, but like... What? I think it's fine too, but I I agree with you 100%. That's what? (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, well, first of all, Hold it's on. certainly one of the more iconic movies ever made. It is one of the most sure uh, one hundred most iconic movies ever made. Well, I, I just did a Kubrick list, okay? Okay, and I, I just want to see where I put this one because it's towards the bottom, actually. Yeah, it is. Okay, so where I, can I see this? Is this on your letterbox? Yes, it's one, two. It's the fourth from the bottom. What is below it? Barry Lyndon, Eyes Wide Shut, and The Killing. Man, I'd watch Eyes Wide Shut again over this. It's close. I think I would. Yeah. I think Gun to My Head, I'd, I'd watch Eyes Wide Shut over this. I don't know about that. I It's funny because I... And actually, I don't love Barry Lyndon, but... Mm, could be. It's clo- like those... Barry Lyndon and Spartacus are closer than, than, you know. I gave. I mean, I gave it... I mean, it gets four stars for me. Like, it's a Really? Good, yeah, it's a good movie. It's just like... I, I don't think it's like... I don't know. I know it's like the least Kubrick film I've ever seen. Well, that is the problem, right? And that's why I think I can watch Eyes Wide Shut again and get something out of it. Although I don't love that movie. It's very Kubrick. And I feel like I'm learning something about Kubrick when I watch it. That's that's a different way of watching the movie, though. You know, like if you're well, isn't that how we watch movies? I don't know. Not no. I mean, I don't watch the movie thinking necessarily what what you know. How does this relate to I don't know Joel or Ethan Cohen necessarily? I just want to take in the the pure experience, and then if I want to, ex- so okay. When you if, watch if, the Lady Killers for the first time, mm-hmm. are you not watching that through the lens of the Cohen brothers' career? I might watch it after the fact. Like, why are you watching that movie if not to learn something about Joel and Ethan Cohen? Because that's not how you watch movies, dude. I'm I'm surprised because that's the way that I watch movies. I think, or at least movies that I wouldn't watch otherwise. Oh, that's interesting. No, I, I just watch the movie, which is why I don't hate the Lady Killers. I mean, it's not great, but I don't hate them. Like, I okay, fine. If you want to watch Fargo in a bubble, there are people that watch Fargo in a bubble. Yeah, but if you're watching The Man Who Wasn't There. Mm-hmm. Or intolerable cruelty, or like lesser Cohen Brothers stuff. Man, who wasn't there is really good. It is re- no, I'm saying it is really good, but it's lesser known though. Yeah. You're watching that because you want to get the full picture of the Cohen Brothers' career, right? Yeah. Is that not the way that you watch it? I might just go and say like I I like their movies, and I'm going to watch this one. But I've had instances where it's like, yeah, I didn't love that one. I, I guess it, that's a different- so there are Cohen Brothers movies that transcend. The Coen Brothers, the directors for you, maybe. So you can watch that movie and not even consider the Coens as you're watching it. I mean, I if I'm watching a movie that way, I'm watching that like like on a second viewing with that in mind. Like that's sort of like outside of the experience. I don't know. You're not you're not supposed to watch the movie and be like, what was Joel doing here or Ethan doing here? What was David Fincher doing with this shot necessarily? I mean, I'm aware of the fact that they made the movie and that comes across with the flavors and whatnot. But I'm not thinking like, you know, what did this necessarily mean to them until after the fact? It's not something I do while I'm watching. Okay, the movie. well, I'm not doing that when I'm watching Fast Five. <laughs> I'm not considering the pantheon of jeremy lynn films you know what i'm saying yeah yeah. but when i'm watching something by stanley kubrick i'm watching the movie because i want to know more about stanley kubrick okay that's different right it's not why i watch movies okay well fair enough i guess that's yeah we had that discussion with shutter island i guess it certainly certainly did and i was just like i'm just gonna watch the movie 
Yeah. No, see, I can't watch that movie without thinking Scorsese. Okay. Scorsese's in my head the whole time. I see him behind the camera directing the <laughs> actors. Oh, yeah. I know about that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm trying my best not to like think about stuff like that, too. Yeah. Because I think it's a much much more uh, authentic way to experience the movie. I yearn for a time in my life where I was able to do that. But yeah. I am such a nerd when it comes to this stuff now, and I've devoted so much of my life to thinking about movies that it's impossible for me to look at it in a bubble. There's times where you can't help it, but that's... Usually when the filmmaker style overshadows like everything where it's like so in your face where you can't help it. Sure. Like that's the issue with Refn yes. more often than not. That's the so, issue with Wes Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think the first time I saw this movie point being I knew that it was a Stanley Kubrick movie. It was probably not the first Kubrick movie I had seen although I could be wrong about that. Um, and I remember thinking this is so un Kubrick. Why did he do this? Mm-hmm. Like, why are you going to do something if you're not going to tap into that genius? Because he was a fucking genius and a visionary. And every Kubrick movie, although he was quite versatile and his movies feel different, they all feel of a piece. And this is the one thorn in the side here. I, I just I can't see the Kubrick in this movie. Well, I mean, it's it's incredibly epic. Yes. And there's some wonderful sweeping set pieces and. But the thing is, that's sort of it. I mean, I was watching it uh, again, and I sort of like after after the fact, I sort of sat back and I was like, "Well, that was a, a nice epic classic film." But I I did think, okay, yeah, no, that thinking back to it, it was not very Kubrickian. No, there's nothing Kubrickian about this film. But you also have to understand that Kubrick was not Kubrick as we know him really at that's this true. point in time. It takes a little bit longer to get there. I don't think. Because he kind of went back and forth. I mean, the first time he ever become like he ever does anything that resembles the way we understand him is Paths of Glory, I think. Yeah, but that was before this movie. I know, but then he had to resort back to like a studio way of making things. And then he goes and does this. And then he does, I think, when was Lolita? Lolita was three years after this. Yeah. We talked about it. 63. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that similarly, I mean, closer, but still not quite there, yeah. in my opinion. And then he's full on when we get to like Dr. Strangelove. Right. When, when is Dr. Which Strangelove? Which is late. 60s or yeah. maybe mid 60s yeah because that's when he's kubrick and he never goes back essentially 64 i'm sorry yeah. mid 60s so yeah four years after this yeah so you have to more you have to understand like where he was at his point the point in his filmmaking career right to understand why the movie is the way that it is i certainly do and i also understand the story behind this anthony mann was originally hired as the director he was a friend of kirk douglas he had to drop out they bring kubrick in again just as a hired hand to finish the material had no hand in the script whatsoever no and often got into some fights with dalton trumbo about this Mm. he thought the movie was too earnest too inspirational he thought the movie ended on kind of a cheap note with the wife bringing the son to spartacus's cross and saying yeah your legacy will live on he thought it was too hollywood kubrick hated that shit man i know he hated happy endings (laughs) <laughs> there, there's even this one story I couldn't believe this Kirk Douglas asked Stanley Kubrick his opinion of the I am Spartacus scene <laughs> Kubrick in front of cast and crew called it quote a stupid idea <laughs> Douglas promptly chewed Kubrick out oh no how crazy is the iconic scene of the movie the iconic quote Kubrick thought yeah that's fucking stupid that's so funny to me though isn't it yeah it's, it's just <laughs> 
So Kubrick was like just a pain in the ass while he was making this. Everyone just hated him. Total pain in the ass the entire time. Here was a funny story. I love this one. Kubrick wanted to shoot at a slow pace of two camera setups a day. And that includes like the 8,000 person fight sequences Uh in the middle of the desert. Wanted to shoot with just two cameras. The studio insisted that he do it with 32 cameras. A compromise of eight cameras had to be made. (laughs) He wanted two. They wanted 32. They went with eight. He is so weird, man. <laughs> that guy was a nutcase. Kubrick complained that the character of Spartacus had no faults or quirks, which is fair, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and uh, to this day, or actually not to this day, Kubrick is dead. But till the day that he died, Kubrick disowned this movie, d- did not talk about it publicly, was not supportive of it. And it is like that one film in the list, kind of like we're talking about piranha 2 with james cameron Mm. it's like this is kubrick's piranha 2 it it just it it is the black sheep of his filmography at least in his eyes but it's not even that bad is the thing no i don't think it's that bad either it really isn't it's 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 perfectly fine i've all like i said when i first saw it i was like yeah that was good that was good but again on reflection it it became more interesting like i said but i think if you just watch this film in a bubble i mean especially if you take kubrick out of the picture it's like yeah that was a perfectly fine epic sweeping thing that inspired you know many of ridley scott's movies yeah you know well, gladiator, gladiator. <laughs> directly so i was like yeah I, I don't i don't mind the movie i don't again like it's not definitely a weaker kubrick film if we but again it's like how do you judge that when it's not it wasn't as up to him in the scenario again because it was so tied to what the studios were asking for yeah i don't blame him i don't blame the movie i don't hold the movie i don't hold that fact against the movie um I, I just wish that there was more Kubrick there. Number one, because Kubrick movies are never boring. I never find them boring. I never <laughs> find them slow, in, unless it's Barry Lyndon. Every other Kubrick movie I just find totally enrapturing. Um, and this one kind of dragged a little bit. Um, and I kind of wanted it to have more of an edge. But maybe that's just me in Gladiator movies. Like, I'm not a huge Ben-Hur fan. Um, movies of this period about the Roman Empire. I guess Gladiator is a rare exception, but I just find them kind of dull. There, I, I don't know. I think it's for me. I, I don't care about them as much either. It's more like the aesthetic that just doesn't, you know, mesh well with me. I yeah, don't, I don't like desert movies. <laughs> well, I like desert movies. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what it is about this kind of stuff though. That is kind of like maybe it's know. the costumes. Could be. Maybe it's just the fact that men wear dresses in this world. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Never, never embraced it. I never liked it. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's good. It's just you know, it could stand to be a little shorter too. Certainly. That's the other thing. Certainly. But what are you going to do? Yul Brenner was planning his own Spartacus movie. Speaking of Yul Brenner. Oh, boy. Uh, it was a race to get a movie out, and this movie won. So there is a separate universe where Yul Brenner was Spartacus, and a different director handled the material. Um, and uh, what else? Oh, yeah. This is also a very important movie because it sort of marked the end of the Hollywood blacklisting, the end of McCarthyism. Mm-hmm. This was the first movie that Dalton Trumbo got to do under his own name since being blacklisted. Kirk Douglas insisted that Trumbo get credit for the script, even though Kubrick wanted to take credit for the script. Um, So they give him credit. The communist Red Scare is basically over at this point. At the time, 1960, JFK actually went to a screening of this movie and crossed the picket line in order to do so. So it was like a really important, symbolic Hollywood movie. And many think that the material, particularly the I Am Spartacus scene, where everyone in solidarity gets up and declares that they're all fighting for the same cause, 
mirrors the Red Scare naming names McCarthyism stuff. Which they're probably right. Yeah. I mean, certainly rally people. I knew that. But so. Yeah, it's 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 certainly an important film. I, I, I respect pretty much every film on this list, too. So, yeah. In this, yeah, no exception here. I like the movie. Don't get me wrong. I like the movie. I'm, I'm in no hurry to watch it again, but I wouldn't be upset if I ended up doing it. I don't know. I just, yeah, it's, it's, ugh. <laughs> I, I wish I could be more passionate about this stuff because like, it, but movies of this era, when, when they're so tied to the studio system, they are just lacking something. Just, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And we're still in the sixties. We're still in the height of the studio system. Yeah. And only towards the end of this year, are we really getting a sense of authorship? But it's weird because when I, if, if I were to watch Spartacus and then watch the Virgin spring, I would, th- I, like, I'd be like enamored by it. The Virgin spring. I'd be like, that's a film right there. It's crazy to say, but the Spartacus actually feels like less of a film. <laughs> so. I disagree with that, but okay. Why do you disagree with that? I think it's blatantly <laughs> obvious. Well, cause you found one boring. Is that, yes. Is that correct. the only reason? Yes. All right. Uh, the apartment. Directed by Billy Wilder, who we were talking about off air, just had an incredible run. Mm. This guy just made classic after classic after classic. I have yet to see a bad Billy Wilder movie. Yeah. Uh, starring the great Jack Lemmon, who I adore. One of the personal favorites of mine. Me too. Shirley MacLaine and Fred McMurray. Winner of, as I said earlier, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Best Film Editing. Also nominated for Actor, Actress, Supporting Actor, Cinematography, and Sound. Number 20 on AFI's comedy list, number 62 on their love story list, and number 80, one spot above Spartacus on their all-time movie list. A man tries to rise in his company by letting its executives use his apartment for trysts, but complications and a romance of his own ensue. Uh, This is the first time you saw this movie. Yeah, yeah. I I thought I'd seen it before in a class, but I was watching. I was like, no, there's no way I've seen this before. And uh, I'm not sure I'd put it at number 80 on best of all time, but I love the movie. Okay. I love this movie a lot. Okay. It's very, 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 very good. Okay. And I I can't get enough Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. And I just love their, their, their charming relationship together. Um, It's funny to call it a comedy. Like it's got levity. I don't know if I'd call this like a full blown comedy. It's more of a drama. Well, it starts as a comedy. Yeah. It starts as just like a workplace hijinks movie. And by the end of it, yeah, it's a drama. But I think all Billy Wilder movies have elements of that. Like Sunset Boulevard is sort of a a, a light, airy comedy. And then it just turns way dark towards the end. That's like noir. And same with like Double Indemnity, you know, like just these really, really like, like it's funny that he, he dipped his toes in that and be, made them so well known. But yeah, those are more like like dark gritty tales. I don't consider Sunset Boulevard funny at all. It's actually quite depressing. I think, yeah, it ends up depressing, but I think that's while they're going there. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think most movies of this kind would not go to the places that Wilder goes. Like he's both a great dramatist and a great comedic writer. Oh, yeah. Well, it's one of those guys that I feel like uh, uh, Woody Allen took a lot of inspiration from. Certainly. I see that a lot with his, with, with his films. They just feel like, 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 like brothers to me. Yeah. Um, I, I, I find just the romantic comedy elements of this to be just damn delightful. Mm-hmm. And it's because of those two actors, as you said. I love Jack Lemon. I've never not loved Jack Lemon. I think he sort of has this reputation of being an overactor and kind of being like a goofball on screen and sometimes playing it too broadly. Um, I understand where those critics are coming from, but I also just find him to be 
insanely charming. And that's one of the reasons why I love him in Glengarry Glen Ross so much. Mm. He's so good in that movie. Yeah, he is. Because he's like the salesman, the schmoozy salesman who in his 30s was able to close every single deal because he was so charming. He had that smile from ear to ear. And you understand why people would want to buy something from him. And just to see him washed up at the back half of his career, uh, commit a crime, it is both hilarious but also insanely tragic and he conveys all that stuff at the same time he's so good yeah he's so good i'm sure he could lend a lot of his own personal experience to that role too yeah because i i this anyone who calls him like like overacting like that's the thing it's like it's in the similar way that i find mifune uh uh interesting because he's he's going like 100 miles an hour for every for every scene he's in but again there's just an inherent charm to 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 every motion and it's the same thing here in my opinion i mean not the same but same in the sense that they're they're doing a lot but it it never goes into the other uh, other side of overacting and being distracting where i'm just taken out of it because he's just so i I don't know he's so friendly and it's almost like it's weird there's like a There's like a childlike quirkiness to what he's doing in this movie a oh, lot yeah. of the time. Oh, yeah. And, and just his how fucking naive he is to everything around him and how submissive he is. Literally, it's a movie about not being submissive. And if you are, then you're, you're going to ruin yourself and those around you. Sure. And I love that. And he conveys that wonderfully. And it never loses sight of that. And I just think, yeah, Jack Lemmon, like, again, his I know he's got like those like quick jarring movements and whatnot. But it's like it's he's a, a broad actor. He is a broad comedy actor in the old school Hollywood sense. But it, I don't know. It just kind of works here. It works for a person like that. Oh, yeah. And I wouldn't have nece- if I'm directing the movie, I would not necessarily have thought that. But seeing it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that actually works quite well. Keep doing that. Yeah. So. No, I, I think that's 100 percent right. That's a good observation. It is well suited to this particular material. Yeah. Um, and Shirley MacLaine is also amazing. <laughs> in this. Oh, I love it. it's another one of those. I just love this girl. Yeah, I love her. It is one of those. Like old school Hollywood troubled mistress characters that men just want to fall in love with because they want to fix all their problems. Mm -hmm. The movie definitely has some like old school romantic tropes of the girl kills herself and the guy becomes more enamored by her. Uh, Tries uh, did I say kill herself? Tries to kill herself. Shit. And uh, and he only becomes more enamored with her, not less enamored with her. <laughs> it's like her, her, you know, her mental deficiencies or her depression just makes her that much more innocent and attractive, even though she's like a capable woman who is having an affair with her boss. Yeah. Like it is. It's a very man movie, man centric movie. Yeah. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily see a movie like that in 2020. Um, but I, I still found it to be very moving, and I love their romance, and I love their chemistry. The entire movie hangs on that, because I was... The rest of the movie's good, and it certainly got its moments, but it's not quite as good when they're not on screen, certainly. Yeah. I just... I don't know. You just learn so much about them, and, and, and just, you know, that kind of relationship. And I mean, I was so worried that the movie was going to end on the obligatory kiss, and it doesn't. No. I was like, Shut no. up and deal. It just kind of keeps, you know, it, it, it keeps it real in that moment. I'm like, I really appreciated that. And it just made that relationship feel more authentic. I just love them together. The movie doesn't force hijinks on you. No. That's the other thing. There's not a lot of comedy that you see coming. The movie just sort of allows itself to go in whatever direction it's going to go. Sure. You know? Um, I, I do remember the back half of this movie. It's been a few years since I've seen it. But I remember the back half feeling a little... Um, anticlimactic compared to the front half. Hmm. Is that accurate? Uh, I, 
again, like what we find, what you and I find climactic in a movie is very different. <laughs> where I watch The Virgin Spring and I'm like, fuck yeah. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> so. I don't know, man. I don't know how to answer that question. I'll say I'm not such a simpleton. Stop making me out to be a philistine. Okay, he's a philistine. Stop it. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think the, the the climax of the movie happens at New Year's Eve, and I actually think it's uh, 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 quite impactful when she finally realizes, oh yeah, this is where I should have been all along. Yeah, and it's really sweet, and it's great to see her finally say, yeah, fuck you, whatever his name was. Yeah, the I, boss. Yeah. And it, it's just and him being an idiot wondering where she went and that kind of thing. It's just, it's, I don't know. It's a great emotional moment. It's not necessarily like this enormous thing happens that changes everything like in Spartacus or something. It's just an emotional climax that I really, really liked. So I think before Jack Lemon found out about the affair, the movie was more interesting. Like there was more of like a manic sense of yeah. you know, running around, bringing keys to your coworkers. Like, I, I found all that stuff to be hilarious. The fact that he had to walk past his apartment every night and just watch people banging in there <laughs> as he had to walk by alone. I found all that stuff to be really engaging. And I think once the revelation is had and everybody knows what's going on, the movie sort of fizzles out. That's the way I remember it. I could be wrong. I wouldn't say fizzles out, but I, whether or not it's it's... It's not nearly as interesting in the sense that the mystery is sort of lost. Yeah. And you're just sort of left contending with Jack as he's, you know, uh, uh, struggling with what this means emotionally and how he's going to deal with that and how he's going to live with his job and that sort of thing. And ultimately sort of the the teasing of whether or not he's going to commit suicide. Yeah. And that's the worst part about the film, in my opinion, the fact that that is not particularly well handled. Yeah. It's very like, like. Uh, it's like, a punchline it's kind of lazy and it is ultimately a punchline and they just suggested and there's never any real weight to it and at the, the the fact that they even suggested that it could happen with the punchline at the end with the the champagne right just felt weak to me yeah i didn't like that but aside from that uh everything else was pretty much fine as far as i'm concerned cool uh the initial concept came from a movie called brief encounter which uh which um, Billy Wilder saw in the theaters, I think in the 40s, and it was about two lovers having an affair in their friend's apartment. However, you never see the friend who had the apartment. And so he's like, all right, let me make a movie about that character, and let me show the other side of this. Okay. Um, Interesting. But in the 40s, due to the Hayes Production Code, and we're going to talk about this in a second with Psycho, Wilder was unable to make a movie about adultery. Oh. So they just didn't let him make it, and... Only in 1960, when the code was finally lifted, was he able to make kind of a risque adult rom-com in this way. It's kind of cool. So, yeah, there you go. That's The Apartment, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. It's very good. Cool. Would you have given it Best Picture? What were the nominees? Four movies you've never seen. Sure. <laughs> I, give it the, I give it the award. Let's talk Psycho. <laughs> okay. Alfred Hitchcock directs Anthony Perkins, Janet Leigh, Vera Miles, and John Gavin Starr. Nominated for Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, Best Cinematography, and Best Art Direction at the Academy Awards. A Phoenix secretary embezzles $40,000 from her employer's client, goes on the run, and checks into a remote hotel run by a young man under the domination of his mother. Number two villain of all time on AFI's list. Number 56, movie quote. Number four, score. Number one, thriller. 
and number 14 all time. Okay. I rewatched this movie this week. Flipped it on Sunday night. Like, you know what? It's been a while. Probably since high school. Hadn't seen it since high school. And, uh, man, this movie fucking rules, dude. Isn't it awesome? This movie's so good. <laughs> Isn't this movie, like, absolutely perfect This in movie every is way? so good. Top to bottom. It is a perfect movie. Yeah. There is not an element of this that is dated. There is not one scene I would remove. There is not one line of dialogue that I would edit. There is not <laughs> one sequence that I would speed up or slow down. There is not one character I would include or remove. This is a perfect movie by a perfect director. Yeah, he's fucking awesome, man. The fact that it hasn't aged a day is a miracle to me. I imagine that I would watch this movie and think, oh, yeah, it's fine and I respect it and it's a... It is a classic movie in the sense that Magnificent Seven is a classic movie, and I expected to have some nitpicks. I watched it intending to bring some nitpicks to the program. I have no nitpicks. <laughs> this, is a per- this is the rare movie that is both iconic in that everybody knows it. Everybody has seen the shower scene. Everyone mm-hmm. knows the plot of this movie. Everyone knows the name. The music. The music. Everyone knows everything about this movie, and when you see it for the first time, it lives up to the hype. Yes, I agree. It is the rare example. Yep. I have nothing bad to say about this movie. I was so amazed by how well it held up on Sunday. It's my favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie. I think we've talked about this. Yeah. Oh, I fucking love this movie. There is but one gripe that I have with this movie. Okay. And it's the ending where the doctor is explaining the way. And that's everyone's criticism. Uh, I don't care. I don't either. <laughs> I don't care at all. It's one of those ones. It, it lasts for no time whatsoever, and it's complemented by one of the great ending, like ambiguous. Not really ambiguous, but that ending and when that swat a fly and that stare and that line. It's just perfect. Here's the thing about the movie too: is that it's not necessarily getting at any greater themes, but it is so. It says a lot about like the the, the nature of the industry at the time mm. and what they were allowed to get away with, and just those those strange themes of like like. And sexualism as well and then you know obviously some psych uh, psychopathy uh, i can never say it like the psychopathic actual, tendencies psychopathy oh the way you actually say it's weird but um good word it, the movie's not necessarily even concerned with the, those those elements they just kind of come through in the artistry of it all which is those are always my favorite films when the ones that don't necessarily go out of their way to say this is what the movie's about it's like it's it's just there yeah and and you can dig for it and you will discover some hidden ideas as to why the film is as effective as it is. Like you could say that about alien and its themes of sexuality and how those are just so, Oh God, just disgusting. Yeah. It's a rape metaphor. Exactly. It's why it's perfect. And same with this movie, honestly, but, um, yeah, I think just as a thriller and as, or as a horror thriller, whatever you want to call it, it's just like pinpoint accurate. Perfect. I can't say much wrong with it. Every, the, the shots go long as the, the shots go on for as long as they need to. Mm-hmm. The cuts are precise and jarring as they should be. Uh, the scenes where it's just talking are captivating and terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, the mystery is great. It's great. It's great. It's a great twist. Yeah, it is. It's and, been taken and, for granted because it's such a part of pop culture, but it is a great twist. Great. It is still one of the great movie twists. Because if I'm being honest, it's like, I I mean, I didn't see it coming when I first saw the movie. I think I knew what it was when I saw it the first time. Yeah, because I was like, whoa, okay, that's very different. And then I think when I saw it, I was thinking like, how were they allowed to do that? Given, oh, yeah. Given the time period. And then, but honestly, even when I saw it like i saw it a little i wasn't like young young i was like maybe like 
it was a little before high school, I think, when I saw this. Yep. But it actually scared me. Let me tell you, that scene, I was watching it Sunday, late at night. It was probably about one o'clock. It's not the shower scene that's scary. No. It's, I, the, it's the stairs that scare me the most of all the scenes in the movie. I don't know about you. It's but the stairs. Where, oh, when, oh, when the cop gets killed. It's just like, holy shit. Yeah. I just, okay. That's not even the scariest. It's the reveal that's scary oh, for me. Yeah, it's pretty good, too. Still, <laughs> it's not even the moment where you see the corpse... But the moment when he runs in dressed up in the drag and they just turn, it's like a full wide view and he's just boom there. There is something. It gave me goosebumps when I saw it on Sunday and I've seen that a handful of times. Well, it's because it's a black room and then you hear footsteps like running towards you. Yeah. And then what? But just the look of it too is like, it's almost too real. Yeah. It's like, it's almost too absurd and too ridiculous. Sometimes when something is so absurd and so out of the, out of the blue, like, it creeps you out even more because it's like, how could you make up a detail like that? Yeah, I know. There's something so naturalistic and unstaged about it, even <laughs> though it is such a Hollywood movie and Alfred Hitchcock is making it. That moment doesn't feel Hollywood at all. It always reminds me. I know this is a strange comparison to draw because you're right. But, like, I think about the Blair Witch Project where they turn the camera and the guy's just standing there in the corner. And, like, inherently, if you were to show me a picture of that, I might not think it's scary. But yeah. the way they play into it is just so jarring and horrible horrifying in every way and i could say a similar thing about that ending where they literally it's just this pretty plain flat wide shot of a guy entering the frame in a doorway right and the reveal is just just totally disturbing yeah but also the fact that this is the first time you're seeing him in action yeah i know and it's fast it's like whoa there he is okay oh that's what just happened yeah i could imagine seeing this in 1960 in the movie theater could you imagine what that's like just shitting yourself that twist for the first time Mm mm-hmm yeah, it one of if not. Look, the, I'm looking at the frame right now on IMDb. It just th- this is an unremarkable shot, but look at this man. I get chills. Yep. Oh, where is it? Oh, I just lost it. Where is Aniko? Oh man, I just saw it was so good. <laughs> oh, but even the stair sequence. Look at that fucking stair sequence, dude. The stair sequence fucks me up every time I see it. Yeah, it still so freaks me amazing. out. Complimented with the music. Oh my god. I mean, what is there to say about the music? Look at this, dude. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ah! Look at that shot! Yeah, you might be right. <laughs> it is so terrifying. You might be right. Seeing a man in a dress holding a butcher's knife. Oh my god, it's so like exploitative and you know raw and ugh, amazing. And of course, but here's the thing. And m- more than as like like as as under your skin as this movie is, I I mean, it just working as a horror movie, working as a thriller, working even as a mystery. Yeah, it's great and all like just crossing genre. But like I cannot express enough and i i knew it when i first saw this movie how fucking amazing just oh just pitch perfect anthony perkins is amazing like amazing in this movie like ahead of his time good in the movie like when i see him and he's just sitting down with janet lee talking about taxidermy just it's just his line delivery it's his posture the way he smiles the way he changes from you know like concerned to sad to like really hostile mm-hmm. under the surface we all go a little mad sometimes. I mean, it's just it's just unnerving. It's like he belongs in hereditary. <laughs> no, but you're right, though. He was incredibly ahead of his time. People have to understand, they didn't make movies like this before 1960. No. This is really the first of its kind. Yeah. Horror was not a genre, despite, or you know, beyond like Frankenstein or Dracula or some of like the old monster movies. But like the really like corny, campy monster movies. There were no slasher movies. There were no serial killer movies. And this is often considered the first slasher movie. Yes. And every movie that has come since in the slasher genre owes something directly to Psycho. Yes. 
Yet you watch it and it still holds up better than all of those movies. Like, <laughs> I love Halloween. Yep. Psycho is still a way better horror movie than Halloween. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible movie. I mean, you could, you could, I don't know. You could make the argument that Halloween's a better horror movie, but it's not a better movie. No, it's not. It's just not a better movie no, than, it, than this. It has no. not aged a day, man, despite no. being in black and white, despite being shot by a, a television crew. Yes. Um, Hitchcock insisted because he wanted this movie to feel a little grittier and independent mm-hmm. to use the crew that he worked on with his NBC show, mm-hmm. uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So it's in four by three. Um, it, it's shot on cheap cameras. Yet you watch it, and it could have come out yesterday. No, I know you would not have thought that too. You, he literally needs to tell you, yeah, this is how we made it for you to realize any of that. And I wonder if, like, you're ten years old and you know what Psycho is because you've seen the shower scene, and you just figure because it's in black and white, the movie won't hold up, and it's just something for old people to talk about and watch. I'm telling you, if you showed this to me at twelve years old. I forget exactly how old I was when I first saw it, but I would have fallen in love with it immediately. Yep. And I'm sure most kids would feel that way because it has not aged one iota. It's great. So fucking good. It's the type of movie, as we said earlier, um, Hayes Code was just lifted. That's when a movie like this was allowed to be made. Um, not only the violence with the shower scene, but also like the sexuality at the beginning with, yeah. with uh, Janet Leigh and, and the boyfriend. Yeah, like that's something you wouldn't have been able to show pre nineteen sixty. The classic, you're not allowed to show a toilet, which everyone knows about. Yeah, which is so weird. It's just so strange. So this movie was the first of its kind, um, and just changed movies forever. It's one of maybe the twenty or thirty most important movies ever made, right? Yeah, I would say so. We have two movies on this list that I would consider uh, uh, the most important films ever made. One of which I absolutely adore. One of which. We'll get to that. (laughs) I should also say Peeping Tom came out the same year. Also very influential. A few months before Psycho. um, Is kind of, from what I understand, is a good movie, but is uh, number 1A on the list of like slashers slasher movies i the th- a little late to the party it felt like it didn't get the credit that, that it deserved because psycho came out well it was also buried because it ruined um um michael powell's uh, career and, okay like never made a movie after that but it is cited like maybe just as much as Psycho. i see like because horror filmmakers are fucking nerds mm. like 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 them all you know and uh they they go out of their way to cite this and peeping tom quite a bit yeah quite a bit I also want to add how revolutionary it was to kill off your main character halfway through the movie. And it's one of my favorite techniques when it comes to like fucking with the audience. Oh, yeah. Because I remember like I remember writing about this in high school, actually, because we, we, we watched it. And I was like, the best thing about this movie, one of the, the scariest thing more than anything, it's not even necessarily the shower scene or the ending or that's that stair scene, whatever. It's just the fact that you are invested with Janet Lee, who's like a superstar, superstar by the, the way. Yes. And the audience is like, here is our protagonist. And then for the movie to kill off the protagonist mm. halfway through, could you imagine what the audience must have been feeling? And this is based on a book. Yeah. Apparently the book only devotes two chapters out of 17 to Janet Lee's character. So she's a minor part of that novel. Hitchcock had the foresight to blow it up and make you sympathize with the character. So the result is that much more horrific. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it does this incredible thing where you switch perspectives. Janet Lee is your protagonist for most of the movie. And then Anthony Perkins becomes your protagonist. And the scene where he disposes of the body and pushes it into the river. Yeah. 
Like, you're rooting for Anthony Perkins in that moment. Which is crazy, right? You know, he's the sympathetic character, and that makes the twist that much more of a gut punch. Well, that's because when, like, it stops midway into the muck, you're like, oh, shit. Oh, shit, dude. You're fucked. And then, oh, thank God. Oh, it sank. But then you reflect on, oh, wait, what? (laughs) What am I doing? It is such a terrifying thing when a filmmaker pulls the rug out from under you. Effectively. I mean, they do it all the time, but... Yes. Not necessarily this well. When Hitchcock's writing this script, I, I just imagine, you know, he's going through all the motions that he normally goes through. And the first half hour of that movie is pretty by the numbers crime noir. Yep. You know, girl steals money, drives away, the cop is after her, and you kind of get a gist. You, you understand what's happening here. It's going to be a, a woman on the run thriller. Yes. And then it just changes genres halfway through. And. That is a really terrifying thing for the audience, especially when you've seen so many movies of this kind Mm -hmm. and the director says, oh, you thought you found your footing. You thought this is the way that these movies go. Well, think again. In reality, I can do this. I can break the rules. When the laws of physics, when the laws of filmmaking are pulled out from under you, it's a terrifying thing. When the institutions that you normally trust when you're in a movie theater fall by the wayside, Human beings don't know how to react, and it's one of the great feelings when you're in a movie theater and all of the rules are broken. Again, if I was around in 1960 and I saw this movie, I would have been fucking jazzed walking out of that theater. I I would just imagine my life would be different. Because it feels like we haven't had that in our lifetime. Yeah. Unfortunately. Where something truly punches us in the gut. Uh, I can't think of one. Midsummer. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. I guess. Honestly, that might be the closest I can think of. There are no more rules to break anymore. At least it feels like there aren't. That's the problem. I mean, I don't know. Fucking Itchy the Killer exists. So, Well, you got to keep in mind, too, most people didn't like Psycho in 1960, or at least most traditional... Critics, anyway. Yeah. Critics did not. Walt Disney hated this movie. (laughs) Walt Disney was like, oh, Hitchcock directed that gross serial killer movie like, you're saying that to me like you're you're those people saying oh my god scorsese hates marvel films Whoa. <laughs> uh yeah of course he does right <laughs> happens man <laughs> we're just all gonna grow up one day and then die and then none of our movies will matter anymore no. <laughs> burn them all get used to it uh that's psycho anything else no i love it i do too man it was so fucking good watch this movie if you haven't seen it people just watch it it's so good all right breathless Last movie on the list. Here we go. Directed by Jean-Luc Godard. Written by Francois Truffaut. What a one-two punch. Starring Gene Seberg and Jean-Paul Belmondo. Nominated for zero Oscars in 1960. A small-time thief steals a car and impulsively murders a motorcycle policeman. Wanted by the authorities, he reunites with a hip, young American journalism student and attempts to persuade her to run away with him to Italy. This is often cited as the first French new wave film. It's yes. Okay. So how about you take it away and explain to me the historical relevance (laughs) of Breathless? Because again, I did not want to watch this movie last night. I was fine cutting it off of the list. You can't. No, you can't cut off Breathless regardless of whatever you may feel about it, regardless of whatever I may feel about it. Um, This is one like the. In film school, it's Citizen Kane, it's Seven Samurai, and it's Breathless every single time. Yeah. Every single time. It's it's 
will always be one of the most important films ever made. If when you talk about cinematic sensibilities and attitude towards the system, um, I mean, you, you, this is alongside Seven, Seven Samurai. This shaped the film brats. Mm-hmm. We need this film in order for cinema as we know it to exist, for better or for worse. Um, and yes, French New Wave is it came out at a time where again film critics were getting more and more upset with the state of film and the sort of assembly line nature of it all. So uh, the people behind the uh, Cahiers du Cinema in in, uh, Paris, I believe, uh, which included um, uh, Godard and Truffaut, said, we're going to make some movies. And they were essentially going to reshape the entire cinematic landscape as we know it. And Godard makes this and uh, Truffaut makes uh, 400 Blows, Mm. which is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, And then you get people like Agnes Varda who go in there and say, I'm going to do the same and do it for women and make something like Cleo from five to seven, which is another favorite of all time for me. I love many of the the French new wave uh, uh, contemporaries, if you want to call them that, you know, the, the, the pioneers of 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 that that movement in cinema. They're wonderful. I have always had reservations for Godard, though. Why? Uh, <laughs> it's 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 hard for me. I've seen only two films by him. I've seen this and um, Contempt. Mm-hmm. Was not a huge fan of Contempt. Um, I appreciate his films from a distance. If we're talking about your, one of your classic sayings, it feels more like an artifact and something I just appreciate, you know, in, in a film book, you know, that kind of thing. And there are elements. Virgin Spring. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, and this film, again, it's very important for like Tarantino, very, very, very much inspired Tarantino, especially with uh, a band apart, which mm. uh, Godard also made um, th- this film. I like I get it. Um, it's very, very obviously trying to break the rules. I guess my issue with it is that it's trying too hard to break the rules. Mm. Um, you said to me yesterday something via text, which I found interesting. And yes, when you're talking about like a, a f- the epicenter of hipster cinema, where all of it comes from, this is ground zero. This is it. Yeah, every single thing you could possibly think of. Basically, every everyone who was worried about like what they were allowed to do in a movie. This film came out and said, "Oh, we can do anything." Right, and. The greatest thing I appreciate about this film is that it did effectively break the rules as we knew them, and then it just opened the gate for everybody. So I love that about the movie. It is certainly irreverent. Yes. And that's great. If I, I, I guess that you could say I love the film for that mm-hmm. alone. The film in a bubble, though, it's I, I appreciate it, but I certainly don't love everything about it. And yeah. Um. People talk about how it revolutionized the jump cut. You know, I certainly recognize that as I'm watching the movie. What I found in my research is that a lot of that stuff was actually incidental. Yes. The film ran 30 minutes longer than they wanted. Um, The studio asked that Godard shorten the movie by a half hour. So rather than just cutting out whole scenes, he decided (laughs) to take out individual moments within one scene. And that leads to a bunch of confusing jump cuts. Continuity is often broken. Um, and I think, you know, Godard is very open about the fact that a lot of this was accidental, but many credit him as being this revolutionary auteur because of this pragmatic decision, which is interesting. I mean, it's one of those like, you know, 
pieces of movie myth. And that's cool. Sometimes art is accidental. Oftentimes, most of the time, art is accidental. Um, what did you think about the movie? I fucking loved it. Wow. I loved it, Adam. Ooh. I loved it. Yeesh. I loved this movie. It's weird. I loved it. Okay. I know. Isn't it weird? Okay. I was so surprised. All right. I really liked it. All right. I thought this movie was so goddamn cool. <laughs> you know what I love? I love cool movies. Yeah. I love movies about cool guys and cool girls doing cool things. <laughs> you think they're doing that? Oh, yeah. Okay. I think these guys are fucking cool. Yeah. I think the lead in this movie, he's an idiot. Yep. And he does stupid things for no good reason. But how many Jack Nicholson characters have we seen just like this? Mm-hmm. Where he's just a guy who you want to hang out with, even though you know you're going to get into trouble if you spend too much time with him. And that girl who's so smart and so independent and sleeps around. And again, you know she's trouble. But man, she's so sexy. Yeah. There's something so sexy about her. The the Again, this is just like a lovers on the run story, essentially. Yep. It is very Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde actually references this movie in the dialogue several times. Um, every lovers on the run story, I think, owes a great debt to Breathless. Sure, it's dated. Sure, some of the editing decisions are a bit much. It's heavy-handed. I agree with you. A lot of the time, Godard is trying too hard and uh, and insisting upon himself more yes. than the material. I agree with that. I just was incredibly entertained and engaged through the entire 90 minutes. There was not a second that I was bored. Okay. There was not a second where I thought the scene dragged on for too long. Interesting. And I just really loved the character work. I love these two people. I wanted to spend more time with these people. And of course, it's not perfect. The first five minutes is really weird. <laughs> they just show you the cop getting shot within literally the first three to four minutes of the movie. And it's kind of silly. And it's silly and slapstick. And it comes out of nowhere. And it, you have a hard time finding your footing. But once the movie settles into its groove, and once you get a sense of the chemistry between these mm-hmm. two, I really was I, I was really in. Right. I was really in. That's cool. And I was actually surprised you didn't like it that much. Because I don't like the characters. Okay. I, I, have, I don't think they're cool. I don't sympathize with them. Do I, you like Bonnie and Clyde? Yeah. Yeah, but they have, to me, much more charisma than these people do. Oh, I found them so charismatic. I thought the girl was amazing in this. Yeah, see, I disagree with that. I don't know. I, I don't know. I found most of them, aside from the guy was fairly entertaining. I didn't like his character, but the performance is fun. I thought the girl was sort of whatever. I don't know. I found I found her fairly forgettable, uh, but the y- you know I guess their their dynamic is fun enough. It's entertaining. It's certainly entertaining. I wouldn't call this movie boring. It's just because it's so you know fucking jazzy, mm-hmm. like almost literally oh, it's so it's jazzy, man. Yeah, yeah. This movie sings. Oh yeah, no, I agree. It's but it's it's hard for me to find my footing with the way with its choices, though. You know, there's a lot of Woody Allen in this movie too. I, I was really yeah. responding to that. Mm-hmm. Just like it, it felt like a New York movie. It felt like a New York Woody Allen movie, even though it's a Paris yeah. movie. Well, when I we were talking about Francis Ha, this is one of those movies. I oh was yeah, directly citing. Oh yeah. You know? I mean, if when if we ever do the 400 Blows, that's another one that will be directly cited as well. Is it similar in tone to this movie? No. Okay. No. The 400 Blows is legitimately one of my favorite movies of all time. Okay. I, I love every single conceivable thing about that movie, and I actually think it's way better than this movie. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of contention on who's the better new wave filmmaker. Is it Godard or is it Truffaut? Yeah. I've always been Truffaut, but... Uh, 
but I, I again, just how much this movie must have just popped when it came out. It's like, whoa, what is this? Right. You certainly get that sense of like a new flavor that has come. Mm-hmm. You know, again, like maybe if I don't necessarily love all those flavors, it's it's very. I I still understand why the movie had the impact that it did. Yeah, I still think it holds up. I still think you can watch it, even though so many movies since have ripped it off. Mm. I was really engaged. The scene where they're in the bedroom together, <laughs> and he's talking about Humphrey Bogart, and uh, you know she thinks that she's pregnant, and they have this weird conversation about her pregnancy. It's such a unique relationship. It just seems, I don't know, it just seems very flat to me. Wow, I, I felt I, the complete opposite way. I don't find these characters flat at all. Because I think they did it better in True Romance. It's the same, same, okay, sure. same, same exact dynamic. Sure, yeah, okay. I Great. Just, I've just, but again, I've just seen it done so much better. True it, Romance with some French people in the 60s? Yeah, sign me up, dude. You hate the French. Dude, it's true, I do hate the French. <laughs> but no, I, I, I will watch the same version of True Romance over and over again, of course. Nah, because that me, story always works for me. Yeah, because in here I'm like, yeah, no, whatever. I don't care about your love for Humphrey Bogart. I, I, and again, a lot of that is like in that scene, the the, the filmmaking is far less frenetic and, and interesting in that way. And it's, I don't know, just the way they engage each other is just, I don't know. I don't know, they're just sitting on a bed. Hmm. I don't know. It didn't, <laughs> that, that, that stuff didn't do much for me. I like it more like when like she goes to see the filmmaker and his response. Oh, see, to, I found that scene to be so distracting. Not the filmmaker. No, like when they depart, you get a you get a better sense of their personality when he's you know uh, he does these weird motions with his hand, with his hands and he's kind of goofy and I really like that chemistry that they have there. But the scene with the filmmaker himself, yeah, I don't like that scene at all. The or is he a fil- he's a filmmaker? He's a he's a poet. Was he a fil- poet? He's some artsy fartsy asshole. Yeah. Oh man, I forget now. No, I thought he was a poet. I could be wrong. Though. Might have been. I thought he was a film. I don't know. Uh, no, I found that scene to be totally yeah, yeah, way too pretentious. Yeah, I don't like that scene either. That that's my least favorite scene in the movie. Other than that, though, it's just so goddamn cool. And I saw it again as an artifact. I was going into it expecting to hate it. Let's keep that in mind here. <laughs> yeah, I was going into it expecting to like the Virgin Spring and and hate Breathless. Yeah, given how you hyped it up for me, complete opposite. I yeah. thought the Virgin Spring was slow and artsy and hard to sink my teeth into, and I found Breathless to just move with this awesome flavor and star two people that I was really captivated by, and uh, maybe it's just that I'm used to movies like Breathless. Those are the movies that I've always been attracted to, and movies like The Virgin Spring are kind of foreign to me. Yeah, because I'm much more attracted to movies like The Virgin Spring. Yeah. This also is a movie that is more interested in the dialogue as well than oh, the yeah. filmmaking. That's more dialogue-driven than film filmmaking-driven. Yes. Because, again, the filmmaking is very messy. There are yeah. times where it works very well, but then there's other times where it's like, yeah, what are you doing? Like, again, with that opening where it's just like, what? Right. Like, I don't think anyone could ever watch the opening and feel the impact of him actually shooting somebody it just doesn't play that way right uh and there are some moments like that when he finds out that she has reported him to the police and he's just like i hate you i'm running uh, away I'm like, uh, what okay of course and then when he finally gets shot it's like okay he's comically walking around the street i don't know it's it's it kind of made me laugh um I just thought it was so cool and sexy i love a sexy movie you do i do i love a sexy movie i love cool characters and I just it, maybe it's just the characters for me. They're just not quite there. Okay. 
they need to feel a little more real for me, a little more genuine. And I don't quite get that out of these people. It feels very like half baked. Like the movie's very like run and gun. Let's just we have we have everything on the page, and we don't quite know how to make a movie. Let's just give it a shot, and that's what you get. You know, it's slightly more elevated because of I guess Truffaut's writing, I suppose, and Godard is just like having a field day, doing whatever the hell he he thinks he should. And some parts work, some parts don't. Um, and like I said, it's it 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 can be cool. I, I don't I don't know. It, it was very very hard for me to feel anything for these people and, and even see them as like cool beings. I don't know. The idea that this movie was only influential because of the jump cuts, I think, is a little no. misleading. I think the the character work, these archetypes of like the the guy and girl on the run doing bad things, mm-hmm. sort of anti heroic. Mm-hmm. Um, the rebel without a cause type I, all came from this movie. So it's not just the filmmaking. It's also the story beats. And I appreciated all of that. And I'm kind of stunned that we're at such an impasse here. I was not expecting to like this movie, mm-hmm. but I really did. Yeah. I, really I, did. I, I don't hate this movie at all. I appreciate it. It's just, yeah, it, it never quite worked on me. I think the way it had for, you know, some others. And it's also different because I've seen other French New Wave films where it's like, like I said, I, I love Cleo from 5 to 7. Uh-huh. And I absolutely, like I said, absolutely adore 400 Blows. Every single thing about that movie is perfect as far as I'm concerned, which you should really watch. It's okay. Great. It's great. Well, we'll do it soon when yeah. we get to whatever year that is. You know, I, I hope it's not this year. This particular No, year. there's no way we missed it. It's probably like 61, 62. What is it? 59. Oh, okay. Yep. There you go. This movie may have come out in France in 59, so we may be breaking the rules again, but... That's okay. Sorry. Uh, okay. Okay. There it is. Uh, Psycho gets in, right? <laughs> sure, you can induct it. Why not? Go ahead. I mean, is there anything that there's even to talk about? It's Psycho. <laughs> it's the best movie. It's the most iconic movie. It may not be as influential as Breathless, but it's pretty damn close, so... Yeah, it's close. It's close enough where it's like, okay, it's it, this is not an E.T. Blade Runner scenario where I'm just shaking my head the whole time. It's like, it's because Psycho is like super influential. I would not expect to put Breathless number two on my list, but I think it actually is number two on my list. Um, uh, and I think The Apartment's number three, and then whatever for the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably... Ooh, that, that's tough. I'd go Psycho, uh, The Apartment... Uh, the Virgin Spring. Oh God! Uh, and then Breathless out of obligation, I guess. And then um, Spartacus, uh, the Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Okay. So whatever. Th- those last three can be in whatever order you want. <laughs> <laughs> but congratulations Psycho. to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, the first Hitchcock movie inducted. Good job into the Movie Hall of Fame. Good okay. job, Alfred Hitchcock. You bald English bastard. <laughs> Sir Alfred Hitchcock. What are we doing next? Next week on the program, assuming Jabril is okay with this, we're going to do our Woody Allen podcast. Okay. All right. Woody Allen in the news recently for not so great reasons. For what reasons were that? Nothing. <laughs> no, nothing. Nothing. You're in denial. I'm not in denial. I'm not a Woody Allen truther. <laughs> I like those fucking assholes on Twitter. I was going to say, put it on Twitter. We'll find some uh, Woody Allen truthers. Oh, yeah. Let's get another feud. Yeah, baby. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we are doing six Woody Allen movies next week, and I think we decided on those already off air. They are Annie Hall, Manhattan, Hannah and Her Sisters, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Z-Lig, and the Purple Rose of Cairo. 
That's the one that we decided on now. Yes. The what was the other one that that we changed? Vicky Christina Barcelona. Okay. Yeah. We can take out late period Woody, I think. Okay. 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 Yeah. Let, let's let's keep it to the classics. Okay. And there you go. Next week we're gonna torture Jabril <laughs> with six Woody Allen movies. I can't wait. Well, let me let me see. He's got to watch all five of these. Woody is not featured in Purple Rose of Cairo. He's just he just directs and writes. Okay. So he might like that one. Or maybe. <laughs> then that's probably the only one. Manhattan he will not like. He will fucking hate it. Oh my god! Oh, I'm so excited for him to. <laughs> Because that movie is literally not fictional at all. Yeah. There's nothing fictional. Man, he's going to hate Manhattan. Oh, my God. <laughs> it is now. Okay. There is an example where it's impossible to separate the artist from the art. I mean, I love that movie, but yeah. that is so obviously Woody. Oh, even I have trouble with that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's next week, though. Woody Allen. Can't wait. Me too. Oh, uh, until then, um, The Bachelor coming next year to ABC. <laughs> We will eagerly await the new season of The Bachelor. Or I guess The Bachelorette. Do you watch The Bachelorette? Yeah, I do, man. You watch them all? Yeah. Bachelor in Paradise. Love is Blind. (laughs) Cool. Uh, Rest in peace, Max von Sydow. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, James Lipton. Yep. Rest in peace. Um, And that's it. Until next time. Qu'est-ce que c'est dégueulasse? Oh, God. (laughs) 